Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 131, for the week ending November 30, 2018. The FCPA Enforcement is here to stay edition. As we prepare for the December holiday season, we consider the SEC and DOJ's strong affirmation of aggressive FCPA enforcement is here to stay, changes in the Yates memo and the plea for increased cooperation by the Department of Justice, and some of the week's top other compliance and ethics stories. But first, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's compliance and ethics programs, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. So what are some of the stories we take a look at this week? Well, there was a plethora of DOJ and SEC announcements, pronouncements, and speeches over the past week, largely at the ACI National FCPA Conference we report on. Facebook really stepped into it this week with documents, its internal documents showing up at the British House of Commons. We take a look at how do you establish pace and scope in an FCPA, excuse me, in an SEC investigation. FIFA judge balks at FIFA's claim for restitution. Surprise, surprise. Russia's largest telecom company reserves $840 million for an FCPA resolution. And the former Venezuelan national treasurer is sentenced to 10 years in prison for money laundering. We consider what is the role of the human element in internal controls and take a look at 11 Latin American law firms who joined together to create a template for best practices in anti-corruption investigations. I know you'll enjoy this episode. Thank you for listening. This is Tom Fox. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, together with Jay Rose and Mr. Monitors. And I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 131 for the week ending, November 30, 2018. The FCPA Enforcement is here to stay edition. As Jay and I prepare for the December holiday season, because it's not yet December, although it certainly feels like that here at 78 degree Houston, we consider the Department of Justice's and SDC's strong affirmations around aggressive FCPA enforcement made over the past week at the ACI National FCPA Conference. Additionally, some perhaps uh, changes to the Yates memo and pleas by the department for increased cooperation. And we take a look at some of the week's other top compliance and ethics stories. So, Jay, uh, first of all, welcome. Thanks, Tom. Um, I think we've got some uh, good and varied things for to discuss this today. Uh, first of all, uh, first of all, as you just uh, hinted at, this is uh, the big week for FCPA Palooza at uh, National Harbor at the Gaylord Hotel otherwise known as the 35th International Conference on the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. So this is a yearly ritual when all the uh, practitioners get together, they get to hear from the government and find out what's happening 
And um, a couple things uh, that we're going to touch upon is there was a, a big speech that was given not at the ACI event, but uh, across town at the Practicing Law Institute. And this was a speech given by uh, John Cronin, the Deputy Assistant Attorney General. And he talked about how that uh, he sees going forward that through the transparency of the DOJ and uh, the way they are setting things up to uh, encourage companies to self-report, that there is uh, an alignment of uh, agendas for both the government and for the companies. And uh, how that really gets affected is by having um, a rigorous and uh, enforceable ethics and compliance programs. So Cronin spoke about that. Other people who spoke during the week uh, included uh, the SEC's Charles Kane, Stephanie Avakian, uh, as we said, Rod Rosenstein. So um, although there are not many big changes, as we've noted, um, the government still, in everything that's happened over the last year, has really uh, signaled to companies what is going to happen if you self-report, uh, that you're going to get a declination, and they've really tried to uh, you know, design a roadmap to help companies uh, move forward and deal with the uh, administration and deal with uh, FCPA and uh, anti-corruption. Uh, anything that you wanted to add to that, Tom? So, um, first of all, the uh, regulators, both the DOJ and SEC, regularly make pronouncements at this time uh, around the ACI conference. So, uh, we've all come to expect lots of announcements during this time. But, Jay, I really see it as a continuation of not only the Trump administration – we can't call it the Sessions Justice Department anymore because he got fired. But uh, really where the Trump administration, Department of Justice, was taking FCPA enforcement, but um, even more so a continuation of policy uh, in the prior administration under the Obama administration. So uh, uh, a lot of continuity here. The department has been moving towards this public-private par- uh, partnership for quite some time. And I think uh, this is one more step in that. Um, what we don't know is it, how much uh, incentives companies have to uh, self-report, but they certainly have. It's been made clear to them that they have high incentives to have a robust and effective compliance program if they do find themselves in a situation where they've uh, violated the FCPA. We've got links to uh, Matt's analysis of the talks. We've got uh, some links to the talks uh, when the speeches were made available. So uh, lots of good information out there for um, the compliance practitioner. But, uh, Jay, um, you know, we were picking on uh, Goldman Sachs for quite a while, uh, and now Facebook just continues to step in it. And uh, they stepped in it in a huge but rather different way earlier this week when uh, a company called uh, 643, who is in litigation with Facebook, they had obtained certain documents around Facebook's policies of uh, working with apps and data privacy, app uh, creators. Uh, That company is in litigation with Facebook. That company had received certain documents through the litigation process. Those documents were under seal. Well, somehow or another, magically, the one of the officers of this company in litigation with Facebook ends up in London the week of Thanksgiving with these documents under seal. Now, he has the right, right to take them there, 
Under seal means they can't be given to a third party. Uh, and magically, uh, as if by a simple wave of a wand, the sergeant of arms of the British Parliament shows up and says, I want your documents, which apparently in, in the United Kingdom he is legally authorized to do. So, you know, how did uh, the British Parliament become aware that these documents were in London? What was this business executive doing in London the week of Thanksgiving uh, with documents in litigation completely unrelated to anything in the United Kingdom? Uh, and then uh, how were they turned over? So uh, really interesting questions. Nevertheless, Parliament got these documents and they questioned the uh, re representative of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, declined to, to attend. So uh, we don't know what his thoughts may or may not have been. And now the UK Parliament uh, has indicated that uh, they're going to release the documents in some sort of redacted forms. So um, uh, and that was even before we found out that uh, um the uh, um, that Facebook had uh, not only um, done opposition research into George Sh Soros, but Sheryl uh, Sandberg had actually uh, went so far as to see if he was shorting Facebook stock and ordered an investigation into his uh, uh, personal financial finances by Facebook employees to see if they could dig up some dirt to use against him. So, um, you know, they just keep stepping in it and they can't seem to um, – uh, well, it's just a, a PR disaster for them. So you can't make this stuff up, Tom, but I'm wondering, might it have been even uh, more interesting if that man with the documents uh, made a trip over to the Peruvian embassy and wanted to see if there's anybody there who might have some information that they might want to share on the Internet? You know, that's uh, certainly uh, 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 a well-time-honored tradition. So next up, uh, we're asking the question is, how do you establish the pace and scope in an SEC investigation? And we're turning to uh, Dan Portnov, who uh, we've picked up before. And this is the third part in a series of posts that are written for non-lawyers. So that's why I'm allowed to talk about this story. And um, Dan tells us that unless you're Elon Musk, the SEC may not make very clear the theory it has as to what you did wrong. Instead, the SEC Enforcement Division may have a broader, vague idea of the alleged misconduct, and they may uh, start a formal investigation. Uh, what tends to happen there is you will get an order from them, and sometimes it's a subpoena, sometimes it's a document request. But uh, basically, it's a little bit of a... Uh, uh, I guess, a fishing expedition to see what you have. And the things that you might encounter at that stage is that, first of all, you might understand that this uh, request is aspirational and not realistic. Uh, they may ask for more documents than you have, or they may be too ambitious. Uh, sometimes there is going to be a statute of limitations on what you can share with there being a five-year statute of limitations securities laws. Uh, document retention requirements and policies come into play. You may not have the documents now because they've been uh, destroyed properly. Uh, you need to educate your staff in order to limit the time and the expense of the investigation. Um, and as we said before, sometimes enforcement will request a broad swath of documents and uh, you can do rolling productions and follow-up requests. And one of the things really to think about at the end is that uh, maybe instead of a purposeful production, you might actually want to cooperate. 
And this uh, would be just in terms of whether you have uh, problematic or illegal conduct without good faith justification or mitigating circumstances. And at this point, you might be in a stronger position to work with the regulator as opposed to, uh, you know, being non-cooperative. So it's a, it's a great piece, and uh, we've linked to it in the show notes. And I recommend uh, going back and reading parts one and two as well as this. Uh, next up, Tom, your favorite global sports league. What's happening with FIFA? So, Jay, FIFA had uh, some untoward news this week um, that a federal judge refused to allow it and two related organizations to obtain restitution by recouping money from two former soccer officials convicted of uh, corruption offenses. Uh, In the first instance, FIFA had sought nearly $28 million uh, in restitution for uh, its uh, investigative costs, uh, and the court called this patently frivolous. Uh, it, that's as strong a statement as you get from a judge. Um, FIFA was not uh, uh, FIFA had not done an investigation until the Department of Justice uh, actually arrested defendants. So they were not doing this uh, in any way to cooperate with the government. And as um, the court put it, uh, corporation acting out of its self-preservation cannot turn around and have its cost reimbursed through restitution. But there were two other of um, regional authorities, uh, CONCACAF, which is North America, and COMABOL, which is South America, claimed, uh, COMABOL claimed that it was entitled to $85.4 million in lost revenues, and CONCACAF claimed it was uh, uh, due about uh, $8 million uh, in loss of income for depressed actual fair market value for marketing their tournaments. The department of, uh, excuse me, the judge uh, completely threw these out as a specious, useless, and uh, with no, not any basis uh, in fact going forward. So, um, uh, complete um, throwing out what the, uh, actually, I should say, both uh, CONCACAF and Comabal did get some restitution, which was in the form of um, uh, the salaries paid to the, corrupt officials while they were working uh, for these regional soccer federations. So FIFA FIFA and its regional uh, soccer groups, once again, uh, are um, not doing very well in court. Uh, we had some interesting news, or at least potential interesting news, on the FCPA and perhaps even greater anti-corruption front, Jay, out of a Russian telecom company. You want to tell us about that? Sure. When I say Uzbekistan, what do you think about? Uh, I think about uh, licenses to sell phones. Yes. So uh, Alexei Kornia, MTS president, which stands for Mobile Telesystems Public Joint Stock Company and CEO of Russia's largest mobile phone company, said it's reserved $840 million to resolve a possible FCPA enforcement action by the DOJ and SEC. Uh, this article comes to us from Dick Casson over at the FCPA blog. And the company, MTS, is cooperating with an investigation by U.S. authorities into its former operations in Uzbekistan. Uh, the company first disclosed its investigation in an SEC filing in 2014, and they shut down their operations in 2016. 
Now, why we ask uh, what's so special about Uzbekistan, uh, last year we noted that Sweden's Telia paid $965 million in penalties to resolve offenses in Uzbekistan, and those uh, penalties were paid to the U.S., Sweden, and Netherlands. And then two years ago, Amsterdam-based Vimplecom reached a $795 million FCPA resolution with both the DOJ and the SEC. Uh, Telia and Vimplecom admitted bribing Golnara Karamava, who's the daughter of the late Uzbek president, and she's been under house arrest uh, in Uzbekistan since 2014. So uh, just like uh, some of the companies we have are the gift that keeps giving, uh, selling t- uh, cell phones in Uzbekistan uh, also seems to be a hotbed of FCPA enforcement. So, Jay, um, for, those, uh, for those keeping score at home, that is previously announced bribes paid of nearly uh, $1.75 billion. And now we have potentially another $840 million on top of that. So that's somewhere in the nature of uh, $2.5 billion. These were bribes paid to one person, and that's uh, Ms. Karamova. Um, this, she may hold the record for the uh, single largest receiver of bribes or single largest uh, amount of bribes received uh, but by multiple companies. But these numbers uh, that were paid are just uh, staggering if, uh, if this report's correct. So I think you're still going to keep us in the billion-dollar club. Uh, why don't you tell us about the former Venezuela uh, treasurer and what he's been up to? So we have Alejandro Andrade, the former Venezuelan national treasurer from 2007 to 2010, who previously pleaded guilty to money laundering conspiracy. His plea was unsealed last week, and he was sentenced to 10 years in jail for his role in laundering uh, up to $1 billion in bribes. The bribes were paid. uh, Receiving the bribe is not an FCPA violation. It's a money laundering violation. But the paying of the bribes is an FCPA violation if you're a government official or an official of a state-owned enterprise. And the, uh, he's alleged uh, or he helped prosecutors bring an FCPA and money laundering case against Raul Gorin, a Venezuelan who owns the Global Vision News Network. Um, he, he, being Alejandro Andrade, uh, forfeited $1 billion in personal assets, including bank accounts, aircraft, real estate, vehicles, horses, and watches. He lived in Florida. And that means if you that's that's the ill-gotten gain he received. So he he had laundered himself uh, over a billion dollars, which maybe in today's world is not what it used to be, but it sure ain't chicken feed. Uh, Tom, uh, here's uh, did did you note this? We uh, also picked up the article from. uh, Sam Rubenfeld over at Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance, and he said that uh, among the 17 horses that uh, Mr. Andrade had uh, had names such as Bon Jovi, and this is the one that tickled me, Tupac Vanda Vroom Bomsha Two. Uh, so he uh, he certainly uh, had a, a very high lifestyle living there in Wellington, Florida. Uh, Kind of like prestigious Simi Valley. Yes. So next up, we have an article from our colleague uh, Tom Gorman, who has an excellent 
uh, website that he publishes called SEC Actions. And this week, he's taking a look at uh, the internal accounting controls and how, in, in, in addition to looking at those controls, there's usually a human element involved. So he took a look at two, uh, two cases. One was a uh, a cyber-related fraud case, and another one was Vantage Drilling International, which I believe we've spoken about for the last two weeks. And in each of the situations, uh, you know, besides looking at financial controls, there were issues where the human element came in and definitely affected what happened. With regard to Vantage Drilling, uh, they were working with uh, Director A, who was supposed to uh, help them uh, finance an operation. And he was working at um, a dry dock where another uh, company was working. And Director A was uh, was purported to have saying that he couldn't even uh, – uh, afford to pay for terms of another contract. When they heard about this, uh, nothing was done about Director A, and they continued to move forward, and this put them in a position uh, that, of a scheme that was uncovered during Operation Car Wash. Uh, the same thing happened in this cyber fraud case where there were certainly red flags along the way, and although you may have controls to point out the red flags, if you don't have humans to actually see the red flags and take action on it, then you're in the same position. So this is, uh, you know, sometimes, not sometimes, but we usually hear internal accounting controls. But this really, uh, in this very uh, good blog, Tom talks about the human aspect that needs to be considered as well. Uh, next up, we have some news about uh, Latin America and um, working in uh, developing best practices for investigations. Sure, Jay. So we had a very interesting article in uh, Global Investigations Review by Melissa uh, Van Brunerson uh, that uh, 11 firms in Latin America, firms from Brazil, Mexico, Chile, uh, Uruguay, and Argentina have banded together uh, to create uh, a network at aimed at developing compliance best practices. It's led by uh, Tazini Farrar, uh, a well-known uh, law firm in uh, Sao Paulo, uh, with Shin J. Kim, who is a well-known compliance practitioner. Uh, she's been a director of the uh, SECCE in the past and regularly attends conferences here in the United States. And what they're trying to do, Jay, is to really help uh, facilitate the bridging of the knowledge gap around uh, anti-corruption investigations in South America one of the things that we have observed out of the car wash uh, Labajito in, investigation is the um, obviously the Odebrecht case and then how Odebrecht expanded out to many other countries in South America. So having this sort of resource of the law firms banding together, I think, is only going to um, uh, uh, help facilitate uh, com com companies uh, learning to do business uh, more in compliance and uh, have a set of investigative best practices, which will allow uh, a much more robust and effective investigation. It's uh, the group is called the Latin American Compliance Investigation League, and uh, I'm very excited for what they put together and uh, look forward to uh, seeing what they come up with. Maybe uh, you need to uh, get to join them at their next get together, Tom. Perhaps, perhaps. So uh, if you're going to be in Houston over the next couple of weeks before the holidays, uh, Tom has a couple of events that he'd like to invite you to check out. 
Right. So, Jay, I'm putting on a half-day uh, compliance uh, best practices uh uh, pro, uh, program at the Houston chapter of the ACFE Association of Certified Fraud Examiners on uh, third, no, excuse me, Tuesday, December 11th, and then the Houston Compliance Roundtable, which is a roundtable I founded uh, several years back or co-founded with Mike Snyder. Um, we're going to be meeting both our Midtown group at Rowan Drilling and the Woodlands group at Nexio. The Rowan Drilling group. Midtown group meets on December 12th. That's Wednesday. And on Thursday, you're going to meet up at the Woodland. So if you are interested in the ACFE event, uh, you can check out their website. We'll link to that in the show notes. And then if you'd like to go to the uh, Compliance Roundtable, just shoot me an email and I'll get you on the uh, the invite list going forward. Um, now, you were, you were recently on a shopping spree and holiday in Venezia, Venice, Italy, and that caused you to Think about compliance lessons from Venice. What, 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 what do you have to share with our listeners? So, Jay, I had a lot of fun with this. I did a five-part podcast series on uh, some compliance lessons through that I picked up through both travel and history. And, of course, it's focused on Venice. Uh, so, um, in part one, uh, I did a podcast on doing compliance the old-fashioned way because that's how they have to do construction in Venice. Literally every piece of construction material has to be hand-hauled, not only uh, hauled to the island, but then hauled up um, to the uh, the business or residence where it's being used. Uh, second is um, the former uh, shipyards of uh, the Republic of Venice. is called the Arsenale. It's now a NATO and uh, Italian naval base. But I talked about that in terms of uh, incentives and discipline in your compliance program. I took a look at uh, the the invisible hand of the market and how risk assessments really need to be attuned to that by considering the uh, street vendors of Venice and selfie sticks. Um, the Venetian gondolier is probably the most ubiquitous uh, image of Venice, really gives you a great lesson on getting out of the office and using your lungs and then finally, you may not have known this, Jay, but the uh, internal reporting system that many of us uh, now use and advocate, uh, hotlines and other uh, anonymous reporting, actually was developed in the city of Venice when it was a republic. And they had um, a symbol of Venice as the line of St. Mark's, and they had lines across the city with an open mouth, and you would put in a uh, complaint uh, that uh, either anonymous or, or signed, and then that would be investigated. So into the lion's mouth and how that relates to your compliance program, all on this week on my site, also available on uh, iTunes, JD Super, YouTube, and Libsyn. Great. I, I, I do remember that uh, story about the lion's mouth, so the, the first complaint, uh, complaint box. So very cool. Um, so on behalf of Tom Fox the Compliance Evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor. We'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 131-131, for the week ending November 30th, 2018, the FCPA Enforcement is Here to Stay edition. Thanks so much for listening in, and have a great weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you enjoyed this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode, and I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.